In 2015, you should know well by now, our theme has been Walk Worthy of Your Calling. And that theme, as you should know by now, comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul there writes, I, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So on Sunday mornings in 2015, we have been talking about this idea of our calling. We have looked at our individual calling and our collective calling as the body of Christ here at Northside. We've endeavored to talk about our holiness this summer. Steve and I worked together talking about some of the things, the ways that we think about outward behaviors and the way that the world acts. And right now we are about in the middle, lesson number three, of a five-lesson series on the Sermon on the Mount called Walk Like Jesus. Now here we are drilling down uh, even deeper than behavior, even deeper than thinking to our heart, uh, the essence of why you do what you do. This is really what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus calling us, as we said last week, to a higher standard. So we have been endeavoring to apply 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, where we're challenged that whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And so we have uh, talked the first two weeks that Jesus called us to walk boldly, meaning that we start with the uh, Beatitudes and we are reminded, blessed, 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 blessed are we. No matter what our circumstances, whether we're poor in spirit, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mourning, whatever the case may be, our external circumstances uh, may change. Our internal condition does not. We are blessed and therefore we can walk boldly. We can be salt to a bland world. We can be light to a world that grows increasingly dark. We let our light shine. We don't become overwhelmed by the darkness. But in boldness, we let our light shine to the world around us. Then last week we said we're called to walk faithfully as God Jesus calls us not just to the you've heard it said level, but to rise above to where Jesus calls us and where he says, but I tell you, as he calls us to walk faithfully in our marriages, in our commitments, in our relationships, in everything we do to be faithful and not just to the world standard down here, but to Jesus's standard up here. He calls us out. He calls out the called out this week. We are. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. If you're in your Bibles, I see many of them open, but if they're not, this would be a great time to do that. As this word is what's going to change you this morning. I appreciate somebody said that the, the, the message from Toby. Uh, Toby is just the medium. The message uh, was not written by me. The message is in that book that you're looking at right now or on your iPhone or on your iPad. Uh, what you're looking at, those words are inspired by the Spirit to instruct us and construct us into who Jesus wants us to be. Now, you're in Matthew chapter 6, and you're noticing in those 18 verses that there is a phrase that is repeated. Last week, the phrase was, you've heard it was said, but I tell you. And that was repeated over and over. This week, the section, the word that's repeated most often is the word hypocrite, which is an interesting word. 
Do you know what that word means? The word actually means, if you go back to the, the original Greek word, the translation there means a two-faced person. Or another translation is one who wears a mask. Well, that's interesting to me. Why is Jesus talking about religious hypocrisy when he uses this phrase, as the hypocrites do? If you think about masks, there's all different types of masks. I'm doing a little, uh, I guess, pre-Halloween promotion. Uh, You've got one mask. This is the happy mask. This is a mask that's good to wear at church. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm great. Please don't ask any more questions. The happy mask. Some of you wear that. You're, you're happy here, but boy, you are absolutely dying on the inside. For some strange reason, you feel like you, you can't be anything but good, great, grand, and wonderful at church. Because people of Jesus don't have problems, right? That's one mask. There's another mask that I call the Incredible Hulk. Angry Christian! I don't know why it is, but I think some Christians are compelled to never be happy. That they have no joy in their life. They, they, They worship like they've been weaned on a pickle. They constantly find something to complain about, something to gripe about, something to critique. You know, this morning after worship, I can't believe he wore a mask this morning. You are, you are an incredible Hulk kind of Christian. Someone once said, boy, the people at Northside are awfully nice. I said, most of them are. We have a few cranks. We try to keep them in the back. We wear that mask. I don't know if you're, a, if you're an angry person or not, but if you are, there's a reason behind that. Someone told you that God didn't like it when we're happy. God doesn't like it when we smile or laugh. Someone told you that God is angry with you, that he's upset with you. And therefore, if you're not looking angry and upset, he's not pleased with you either. A third type of mask is, um, well, what I call the tough mask. Now, of course, all these masks I got from my 10-year-old son... And I looked at this one and I said, Tyler, what is this mask? He said, Dad, duh, it's a ninja. But this mask to me looks tough. It's that tough exterior. I'm not letting anyone through. I'm tough, you see. I can take it. It doesn't matter. I I don't have to be vulnerable. I'm tough because I got Jesus. Well, I'm not sure exactly what kind of mask you wear. The hangry, the hangry, the happy mask, the, maybe you're hangry too. Um, The happy mask, the angry mask, the tough mask. But whatever type of mask you wear, it says everything in the world about your relationship to God. Here's the point I want to make about this. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you can flip back there, but stay in Matthew 6 with one finger. Uh, If you go to Genesis chapter 3, remember they had fallen from sin. And mankind's immediate response is what? The first thing they do is to make fig leaves, coverings for themselves, to make a mask. That somehow, innately, within their being, they knew that the relationship they had with God had changed. Later on, the text tells us that 
God called out to man. This is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. They called out to man. He called out to man. Where are you? Now, it wasn't like God didn't know where they were, what tree they were hiding behind. What he's saying there is what has changed. See, when they used to walk with God in the cool of the day, they had a relationship of love and trust and intimacy. But now sin has separated that. And there's something that they're ashamed of. That's one purpose of a mask, to cover something that you're ashamed of. But the second purpose of a mask is to try to be something you're not. Uh, This is what will happen here in about a month when all of our little children go trick-or-treating up and down the streets. And they'll pretend to be something they're not. That's absolutely fine as children. What gets dangerous is when adults start doing that. When we try to be something we're not. It says to God, I, I, lo- I love you, but I don't, think, I don't think I've earned enough of your love. So I need to pre- pretend to be something I'm not. Or I need to cover up something that I am. Why do you wear your mask? I wonder. It's an interesting question when Jesus addresses people who are wearers of the mask. Two problems with masks. Uh, Number one, you can't wear them forever. Exactly as we learn from the life and lesson of Judas is, eventually the mask will come off and you'll be shown to be your true self. But the second problem is you're lying. You're lying, you think, to other people, but really you're just lying to yourself. And that's the worst possible lie in the world is the lie that you believe. You are wearing, if you're wearing a mask, then you have an integrity issue. Now, I'm not an engineer. Engineers, don't come up and explain this to me in all your nerd speak. What I'm I'm about to tell you is an engineering term, integrity. And integrity, from an engineering perspective, means that this substance or material is consistent throughout in other words, this steel beam, if I, if I measure it for integrity, it's equally strong in the middle as it is on the ends. The outside is as strong as the inside. And so when Jesus calls us to be people of integrity, what he's wanting is the outside to match the inside. He's not chastising the outside, except if it doesn't match up to the inside. And so in this Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18... Jesus is calling us beyond outward religion and into an inward relationship. This religion, any religion, if it doesn't stem from a relationship with your father, it's just empty good works. James would say in James chapter 2 that faith without works is dead. His brother Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6 that works without faith is also dead. It's an integrity issue. In other words, the way to ask of this is your heart behind the actions that you live. Isaiah famously said in Isaiah chapter 29, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, they were doing the right thing. They looked good on the outside. They knew the songs to sing and the prayers to pray and the scriptures to read. But their hearts were very distant from the author who wrote the book and the, and the, the songs that pointed to the author, the worship that was about the author. 
Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. This morning, you may be here and you may look very good. Jacket, maybe a tie. Uh, you may have suit pants on. You may have jeans on, short sleeve, long sleeve. Uh, that's all judged very differently. People have different standards of the outward appearance. But with God's standard, the inward appearance, it is always consistent. Let's go to the text now. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, uh, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, uh, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, for, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus calls us to consistently give in secret. But that, doesn't, that jars me the wrong way. I don't, I don't understand why he's so big on keeping it a secret. I mean, a lot of good that giving does happens in a public way. We just a few minutes ago passed plates and you probably put something in and and hopefully maybe you saw as you passed someone else put something in. Is there anything wrong with that? No, no, no. What he's saying here is, who do you give to please? Do you give to impress other people? Well, then that's the wrong spirit of giving. The giving in secret is this beautiful Intimate connection that you have with God, that when you do something with his money that he's placed in your hand, you're honoring him by doing it in secret because he's the only one who sees it. Why do we do this? Well, because God is a giver. John 316 has already said this morning, for God so loved the world that he gave. God is a giver because he loves us. And so then when we give, we give as a response to these blessings because we love him. The greatest blessing is in giving. Acts 20, verse 35, Jesus famously said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I guarantee you, if you could just try to think for a minute about all the gifts you've ever received and try to just... Let one rise to the top of the best gift you've ever received. I guarantee you it pales in comparison to the joy of giving to someone who couldn't pay you back, to someone who didn't deserve it, to someone who only God saw the gift happen. You will be far more blessed from the giving than the receiving. This is why the early church had this ingrained in them. Turn to Acts chapter 2. I want you to turn there because we need to read it. The first Christians had a lifestyle of giving. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 47. The good doctor writes, All the believers were together and had everything in common. We're in verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Giving is not just who God is, but it ought to be who his people are. It ought to be ingrained in our DNA. Look at how the first Christians gave. It was it was to each other. It was for each other. It was in their homes. It was sharing food. It was being a blessing to one another out of a response to the blessing that God had been to them. It went far above uh, collection plates and church budgets. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. As a recipient of those funds, my wife, my children, and my mortgage, thank you for being generous givers. But it is, a, it is more than that. It's a deeper part of our DNA. You, you ought to give to your neighbors. You, you ought to give to your coworkers. You ought to be a giver in life. You ought to find opportunities to bless others. Not to receive a blessing, but, but because you've already been blessed. Well, I, at Northside, I'm preaching to the choir on this one. You guys do such a wonderful job of really blessing other people. Uh, I know the Tandys went up to see Joshua Oakley and the, to visit the blocks, and they took a huge basket full of cards, and I'm sure within those cards were gifts of, of ways that people wanted to bless them and to help them. If you are a guest at Northside, you need to know Northside is and always will be a giving group of people. We give in the plate, but we give far above and beyond that because it's ingrained in our DNA. We believe, just like the first century Christians believe, the greatest blessing you'll ever have is in giving. We have to give out of love. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 says this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. We, we do like the first Christians. We take up collection every first day of the week to make sure we can do the missions and do the ministries that our elders deem as important and as a part of our vision. Each of you should give what you have decided in your, catch this, in your heart to give. Giving's not just a matter of what comes out of the wallet. Giving is an overflow of the heart. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's a open hand versus closed hand thinking. It really, it's, there's two types of ways to think about it. I hold in front of you my two hands. I want you to hold in front of you your two hands. Go ahead. It won't kill you to not to fill in the blanks. Just put them up. Now, you have your two hands, and I want you to think of this as your life. Now, there are two ways to approach it. You can have your hands open to receive the blessings of God. And you can have your hands open to share the blessings of God. Or, do this together with me, 
You can close your hands tightly. You can, you can hold on to your, your money and your stuff because bad things are going to happen. We never know what's going to happen. We've got to be prepared. We've got to hold on tightly so that we have everything we can have. And we've got to save it up and we've got to hoard it away. And we've got to keep it for ourselves. And I can't give because I need it for these other things. And I'm going to hold on to these things. And while we're holding on so tightly to the things which are not even ours, notice then your hands are not open for any more blessing. It's a scarcity versus abundance mentality. We give because he gave and because he continually gives. I ask you, God gave you a house. Have you invited anyone into it? Have you shared that extra bedroom? Have you had other people to your table? God gives you food. Are you going to bring some to Harvest Sunday at the end of October? Have you shared food with the hungry? Have you helped those who are in need? Have you donated that food to Carpenter Place? God gave you a car. What do you do with the extra seats? Do you help bring people to church? Do you help give someone in need a ride to the hospital or a ride to work? Guys, I'm here this morning because for three years from age 13 of my life to age 16 of my life, there was a family at the Emporia Avenue Church of Christ. I had been baptized. I wasn't raised going to church. And we weren't there every Sunday at all. There was a family who went to the church who openly volunteered and willingly shared their car. And they drove from my house to 1144 South Emporia, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, for three years. They hauled their family, they hauled me, and they hauled another sister, Peggy Wallace, in that car. I learned so much about being a Christian in the back of that car, about how you use your blessings when you've been blessed. This is the response of Christian people. God gave you wealth, so what? I don't care if your 401k is big or you have great investments. What are you doing with that? He's given that to you to bless others. He gives, so we give. It's a beautiful thing, and it's a beautiful saying. You can give without love, but you cannot love without giving. Jesus calls us to give and to do well and to excel at that grace. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. We're now in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on their street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who does, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And lead us not, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. The second way Jesus calls us is to pray in private. Now, I hope you're not misunderstanding me. I've been up here. I've led public prayers. I'm not saying public prayers are a bad thing or a, a problem at all. Jesus prayed publicly. The early church prayed publicly. But what Jesus is calling us to is to pray in private first. Who you are when you are alone is who you are. Are you praying to God? Your prayer life, I put a picture of an iceberg there. This should be a very good picture of your prayer life. The the top line there above the water, the surface, what people can see, that should be your public Prayer life. It's fine to do that, but the deeper, more intimate, growing part of your prayer life should be the private, submerged part of you where it's just you and God. Whether you actually have a prayer closet like in the, the movie War Room or, or if you have a, a special room, fine, or a chair, or if you go out on your deck with a cup of coffee and you just, the point is not where, but who you spend the time with. You communicate with your Father. Pray to get God. Don't pray to get stuff from God. Your Father knows what you need. What He wants more than anything is you. And what He wants you to know more than anything is your greatest need in life is Him. So pray to God, not at God. Prayer shows where you put your trust. The more you trust in yourself, the less you're going to pray to God. The more you learn to depend on God, the stronger your prayer life will be. Meet your Father privately and regularly. Open a secret prayer room or a place where you go to connect and commune with your Father. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Jesus says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. God calls us to give in private. God calls us to pray in private. But God also calls us to fast. Now, you're not paying attention to me now, are you? She was speaking of fast. Good job, Brad. Jesus calls us to consistently fast incognito. Um, It's interesting to me that we talk about giving because Jesus talked about. We talk about praying because Jesus talked about. We don't talk about fasting often. Fasting is presumed by Jesus. We know Jesus did it. He did it for 40 days. I'm not calling you to do that. But we know while Jesus was on earth, his disciples didn't fast. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, the text reads, John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? 
Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Fasting is presumed by Jesus as something that the disciples, the followers would do. We know it was practiced in the early church. They did it in times of sadness. They did it in times for times of prayer. They did it for times when they were specifically wanting to know what God said. And they did it for special times of devotion. Fasting is using the constant desire of the flesh. The constant desire, your hunger, and your flesh says, I need to eat, I need to eat. And you saying, no, we're not going to eat. And your body says, why? And you say, we're going to focus. And so we focus on our private relationship. And so fasting should be a part of that private relationship. But listen, only if we do it right, I'll never know if you do it. Only God knows. In fact, all three of these things, if we do it right, it's effectively, most effectively done when we do it in a private, intimate relationship just between us and God. I've spoken about my grandmother before. She was an influential part of my life. Your own grandmother and grandfather probably were as well. My grandmother had this practice when we'd go visit her. As we left, we were packing our bags and taking them out the door. She'd slip something in our hand. And it was usually a, a dead president. Uh, five, ten, twenty dollar bill. She'd fold that up and she'd give that. And she would say, now, let's just keep that between us. What was she saying there? I care about you. I'm investing in you. And I want this relationship to continue. All of these things God wants to keep just between us. He wants to have a relationship with you. You need to know that fasting is not a salvation issue, but it is a spiritual health issue. It's about growing and maturing in Christ and deepening your relationship with him. So the question was not if we should fast. The question was how we would do it when we fast. And Jesus simply says, don't do it for show. And two, keep it between you and God. In all of these things, we have to seek to fix our eyes on what is eternal instead of fixing our eyes on what is external. External things are things like what people think. If you care so much about what other people think, you're missing it. That's what hypocrites worry about. Eternal things worry, eternal people worry about what God thinks. External people worry about popular opinion. Eternal people worry only about what God's word and standard says. External people worried about keeping up the mask. Got to look good. Got to keep it up. Eternal people are only worried about pursuing the deepening relationship. External people worried about the outside. Eternal people continually working on the inside. The problem for hypocrites, for the two-faced, for the mask wearers, they are focused more on the outside than on the inside. They pray just to be heard. They give only when they get credit, and they fast just to be noticed. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we fix our eyes 
not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So then, Jesus calls us not only to walk boldly and understanding we're blessed, not only to walk faithfully and to go above and beyond you've heard it said, but to live as I tell you, but then this week to walk consistently, not hypocritically. You should be the same right here, right now. If I went to your place of work tomorrow and talked to your coworkers and I said, tell me about Justin Abraham, tell me about Brian Ashcraft, tell me, tell me what kind of people are they? Tell me about Randy Estes, tell me about Clayton McCullough, tell me what kind of people they are. It ought to match up exactly with who you profess to be today. How do we do that? That's only going to happen if our relationship with God is first. It's all about the Father. We pray to communicate with Him. We give to share the overflow of His blessings because we love Him. We fast to focus fully and completely on Him. Well, I'm done. I know the children are done. And uh, it's been a blessing I pray that you'll seek to make your walk consistent. Your Father God wants more than anything to know you. And Jesus said there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Him. So if you don't know God, I want to tell you this morning that the only way to God is through His Son, Jesus. And if you're ready to confess Him as Lord, to repent of your sin, and to put Him on in baptism then you can know God through Christ. But if you did that, and you feel like you're sort of wearing a mask all the time, I want to invite you this morning to take off the mask, to let your Sunday morning be consistent with your Monday through Saturday night. I pray that you'll come if you have a need to put him on or to take the mask off as together we stand and sing.